it's not at eight o'clock, so that's just a few seconds. Thank you. 
So, Srimad uh, Bhagavatam, I believe today we're on 
three periods of four months complete one year. According to Vedic astronomical calculations, there are 13 months. Uh, the 13th month is called Adhimasa or Malamasa and is added every third year. The time factor, however, cannot touch the lifespan of the devotees. In another verse, it is stated that when the sun rises and sets, it takes away the life of all living entities, but it cannot take away the life of those who are engaged in devotional service. Time is compared here to a big wheel, which has 360 joints, six rims in the shape of seasons, and numberless leaves in the shape of moments. It rotates on the eternal existence Brahman. So clearly what we have here is a metaphor, a, an elaborate metaphor. And uh, in case anyone's a little rusty, a metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. Notice time is not literally a wheel. Um, but it's, it's meant to communicate and it does communicate powerfully, it can, especially in this case. So, Karana Muni is addressing Lord Vishnu, and Nateya Janaksha Brahmirayaveshan, that uh, the axle of this wheel, it's like a chariot wheel, which is also a, a, an image of uh, aggression, the chariot. Uh, is a military vehicle, actually. Otherwise, civilian people use carriages. So, the idea is that time is aggressive. Uh, this is also, Krishna explains this in Bhagavad Gita, when Arjuna sees Krishna devouring all the words, another uh, sort of a, a, uh, a vision given to Arjuna, uh, this universal form, devouring all the worlds. And Arjun said, Ko Bhavan, who are you? Ugra Rupa, in this awful form, this frightening form. Ko Bhavan Ugra Rupa. And Krishna answered, Kalosmi, time I am. Loka Kshaya Krit, destroyer of the worlds. So, uh, just like if you attend a, uh, I don't know, baseball game, soccer game, basketball game, choose your own sport, one team may be leading throughout the whole game, but at the end, they may actually lose. And so what Krishna explains is, if you look at the final scoreboard of everything in this world, it's existence, zero, and uh, destruction, I guess, everyone. So that's the final score. That's what goes down in the record books. For example, we have this body and we experience the different phases of the body. Uh, beginning in the womb, actually, prenatal experiences, which are described in the Vedic literature. And then, of course, we are born and go through all these different stages. But the final score, non-existence. Krishna explains this in the Bhagavad Gita, Nasato Vidyate Bhavo, of the Asat, or, or literally of non-being, that which is temporary, nasato bhavo, there's no real 
Bhava was, was existence. Bhava means existence here. Nasato vidyate bhava, na abhava, na bhava, and the of the non existence. Na bhava vidyate sataha. There is no non existence for that which is set, for that which is eternal. So, um, many philosophers or many schools of philosophy, including Buddhism prominently and others, have noticed the temporary nature of this world, that everything is sort of melting into something else. Uh, Heraclitus, who was a pre-Socratic philosopher, almost pretty much a direct contemporary of Buddha, is famous for having said, or everyone believed he said, that uh, you cannot step in the same river twice. We know about these pre-Socratic philosophers from Aristotle, who uh, wrote about them, their own teachings. Survive. Aristotle actually did what's called a doxography, uh, which means just writing down what the philosopher said. So you can't step in the same river twice, or to put it another way, you cannot breathe in the same body twice. Because you can breathe, and your next breath, it's a different body. I mean, not absolutely different, but it's, it's changing. It's, we know that our bodies are actually these super computerized uh, mechanisms. There's like right now, there are millions of things going on in your body. We're just sitting here kind of, you know, taking advantage of Bhagavatam, which is one of the uh, best times of the day to take a nap. So, that's a big cure for insomnia for many people. So. But actually, uh, we may just be sitting here peacefully, but there are millions of very dynamic functions going on in our body. There's actually been, in the last 10 or 20 years, whatever it is, a real revolution in microbiology uh, in the sense that um, scientists are discovering that the complexities of your... Bless you. The complexities of the body uh, at a, a microbiological level, which sort of means, you know, cellular and subcellular and all that, uh, that, that the complexities, the mechanisms of your body are actually vastly more complex, vastly more sophisticated than scientists ever imagined. There are motors inside cells. There are, there, it, it, it's like a totally digitized Amazon distribution center or something. And uh, so previous conceptions, I don't mean to actually endorse Amazon. I certainly do not mean to endorse Amazon. But anyway, so it's, um, even at a cellular level, with each cell is this like ridiculously complicated technologically advanced thing going on with you know DNA, with codes, sending digital code here and there, things being transferred from one place to another, being very precisely inserted into other. So it's this, um, it's mind-boggling. And so therefore, the, the real upshot of this is that the probability that your body 
arose simply due to natural causes, which in philosophy means there's no consciousness of any type of higher being. It's just the wind blew, the, as I would say, the wind blew, the rain fell, seismic activity, and, and there you go. You have these insanely advanced computers that reproduce themselves, which are almost, almost infinitely more sophisticated than human-built supercomputers. And all you need is, you know, a little wind and rain and, 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 and you know, it's, it's very intuitive. Actually, it's idiotic. And uh, you see, like, these desperate efforts of the material of materialists to uh, defend what is ultimately absurd. We can look back in history and see other historical moments when there was a reigning worldview. There was a worldview that had power, and, you know, people become addicted to power, and... If you were, for example, in the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance, and sort of gliding into the scientific revolution in the 1600s, if you were, if you had a powerful position in the church, and uh, you grew up learning a certain worldview, which in the medieval and then early modern church was basically Ptolemaic astronomy. Ptolemy was a uh, real smart guy who was in charge of Alexandria for a while. He was a descendant, actually, of the ruling families that took over Alexander the Great's empire when he died. But he came up with a theory of astronomy, which was heliocentric. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, geocentric, Earth-centered, and it worked. It actually worked. It was He was a brilliant mathematician, and so... He came up with this theory of why the planets move as they do, when eclipses will occur, because, among other things, uh, people needed to know these things to do astrology. Astrology, by, by the way, was wildly popular. Everyone did astrology, and so people wanted to make sure they did the right, they got the right reading, and so you needed good astronomy to do good astrology. Because if you don't really know where the planets are, you're going to get sloppy astrology. And even when uh, the classical world became Christian, no comment, um, even when that happened, uh, they still needed to count, they needed good astronomy because they had to calculate holy days. Prabhupada mentions the Vedic calendar, it's actually a lunar calendar. And many ancient civilizations uh, use the lunar calendar, for example, the sacred uh, Jewish calendar by which they calculate um, holy days is a lunar calendar and other civilizations. Uh, the reason for using a lunar calendar, I think, is, is sort of common sense if you think about it. And that is, even though the solar calendar in some ways seems to be more accurate, superficially, simply because it needs far less correction. As Prabhupada, there was a lunar calendar uh, every three years you have to add a whole month to correct it whereas the solar calendar every four years you just add one day so in terms of which calendar is kind of in one sense more precise and, and so the world kind of went with the solar calendar however why did they use a lunar the lunar calendar was, very, was used for another reason and that is 
because astrology, the science or former science or until to some extent science, of astrology is based on observing celestial bodies in the night sky. And the moon is much more often visible in the night sky, in the day sky. So if you are attuned to the night sky, then a lunar calendar, it, it just fits in much better. It makes it much easier to make all your calculations. In any case, um, uh, time, it's interesting, I remember when I was at UCLA as an undergraduate, one of my professors said that scholars have been trying to figure out for centuries what time is and they're still working on it. So what is it, because if you think about it, time is, a, is not only a way of measuring, well, for, it's, it's a way of measuring uh, movements of a physical thing, whether it's an hourglass or a ticking clock, you know, with an hour hand and a minute hand, or a digital clock, or however you calculate time. There's also, uh, you can do uh, solar calculations, for example, you can, uh, a sundial, because as the sun moves through the sky, you see where the shadows are and where the sun is, and you can tell what time it is. So there are different ways to calculate time, but in a sense, the way we calculate time is by observing the movements of physical objects, whether it's sand through an hourglass, or a sun and shadow on a sundial, or a digital clock, or you know, hour and minute hand. And so we measure it by physical movement. What is it? It's a medium that things are moving through. Or are they? I mean, we know there's space. There's space and time. Interestingly, Einstein talks about space and time as ultimately one unified medium through which things move. That was one of his big uh, contributions, that there's, such, there's a space-time continuum. We won't go into Einstein right now. So time... But what, what Krishna reveals about time in Bhagavad Gita is that actually it's more than just that. It's more because time is, this is something Einstein didn't understand uh, because the Hare Krishna movement had not yet come to a place near him, but time ultimately, time ultimately is a force is a force. In fact, the Sanskrit word kala uh, comes from a root, kal, which means to impel, to drive something. And for example, the word is used in Jayadeva Goswami's prayers of the, t uh, the ten avatars, the Dash avatars, where he describes kalki. And his song to kalki, his little stanza, his kalki begins, kalayasi vikramane uh, Oh, no, 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 Chalias, Chalias, no, it's a different one. We both messed up there. But since I'm a guru, it's your fault. You know how things work here. So, Kalayasi, oh my God, does, let me, i got to find this. I'll go crazy if I don't find this. I won't literally go crazy, so. Yes. Oh, yeah. Kaliasi Karavalam. That's, oh, okay, I got it. 
Krishna definitely manifests in this age as the internet. <laughs> okay, so the verse is, this is the last avatar, Kalki. When the time comes to destroy the uh, savage barbarians. Kalayasi Karavala. He, oh, you, actually it's in the second person of this poem, you wield a sword. Kalayasi, Kalayasi, Karavala. So the verb is Kalayasi. Dumraketu Miva Himapi Karalam. And your sword is like a deadly comet. Like you think of how a comet flashes through the sky. Kimapi uh, Karalam. And it's devastating. So, but the verb Kalayasi. You wield, and so think of that motion of, whoops, for those who are here, i got to make sure you can see it there on Facebook. <laughs> want to make sure you get your money's worth. So, kalayasi karavala, which means wielding a sword, and so driving a sword. And so this is the same, this verb comes from the same root as, as the word kala. So kala is not merely a medium through which things pass, even if you look at um, Einstein's space-time continuum, uh, which in which the space-time continuum exerts power over material things, it bends them, so to speak. It bends light, and so. But this is still a very incomplete description. What Krishna says is, "Kalosi lokachaykrit." Time is actually the power of God, the energy of God, which drives everything inexorably to meet its destiny. For example, there's a very famous verse in the Vedas, Sa'aikshita, he glanced over the, over the um, Pradhana. There's Pradhana and Mahatattva. Uh, pradhana means the total material energy when it's inert. For example, now we take it for granted that fire burns and water moistens or dissolves, and the air, you know, the air has its effect. The air blows around, there are laws of gravity, you know, thermodynamics, whatever. In other words, matter interacts within itself. Matter interacts, it has forces, it, it, it creates things. We take this for granted, but actually, Matter isn't always like that. That's just matter when it's sort of up and at them. But there's another stage of matter called pradhana when it's just inert. It's just blah. It doesn't do anything. It's just, it just, it doesn't do anything. It's like a motorcycle in a warehouse, you know? That was an amazing analogy. Wasn't it? <laughs> you can all get t shirts that say, like a motorcycle in a warehouse. <laughs> Okay, you heard it first here. <laughs> Remember where you were when you first heard this analogy. So, so there's a stage of matter where it's simply inert. It doesn't do anything. So what happens? What activates matter? Krishna glances at it. Krishna, and, and so what is that glance? In, our, in, in the Vedic literature, it said that glance is time. It, it's the time force. So, what does that mean? You, as a conscious being with free will, God-given free will, you act because, because 
in order to be an actor or an agent, in the philosophical sense, I don't mean in the Hollywood sense or in the life insurance sense, you know, an actor or an agent. But in the philosophical sense, you are an agent, an actor. You, you act in this world. And, and in order to be considered philosophically an agent or an actor, you have to have consciousness and, uh, and intention. Because we can imagine someone who's so, so dull, they have consciousness but no intention. What do you want to do? Nothing. You know, just sort of go into a slug phase. Anyway, actually even slugs have intention, right? So, so if you're conscious, you have to have enough consciousness to actually be considered to be exercising free will. For example, let's say someone's on a hospital, like on their bed, and they roll off their bed and accidentally, you know, kill an infant or something. They're, they're asleep and roll off their bed. I mean, it's tragic, but you, that person didn't really commit a criminal act, or if someone's mentally impaired, or an animal, an animal. So you have to have a certain level of awareness to be considered responsible for what you're doing. So when you do have that level of awareness, and you do choose to act, you're responsible because you chose it. There's a moral responsibility that accompanies an intentional act. And so when the universe goes through cycles of creation and annihilation, it's really interesting why. If you think about it, Krishna says that there's the days and nights of Brahma, which are very long times. So why did God create the world with day and night in general? It seems to me that because we need time to rest, even mentally. In other words, if we were just frenetically active 24 hours a day, the world would be a little crazy. So it's, you, you're active during the day, mentally active, and I think mentally and physically people just need to rest. And in a sense, when you've been plowing through your karma and creating new karma for you know a few hundred million years, you know, it can get a little tiring. And so Krishna just gives you this huge rest, like, hey, why don't you just uh, you know take a nap for a few hundred million years or something, you know, and uh, so that's what happens. So even at a cosmic level, Krishna gives conditioned souls these large time spans just to rest from all they've been through, suffering and karma and so on. But when it's time for another creation, either during the day of Brahma or when, when Mahavishnu is casting out the universes, when you went to sleep inside the body of Mahavishnu, when you went to sleep inside the body of Mahavishnu, it's not that you didn't have any karma. It was just, you know, just half time or something. I guess maybe Lady Gaga comes out somewhere in the universe and does a halftime show during the night of her. Anyway, so, so anyway, um, so when we go into the body of Mahavishnu, we still have lots of desires. We have, and because we have desires, we have destiny. Because if you commit an intentional, well, if you engage in an intentional act 
for which you're responsible, that responsibility, which means you're gonna get a reaction for it, that responsibility defines your destiny. That's what destiny is. Actually, I will look up the word destiny in the dictionary. Destiny means the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person or thing in the future. So inevitable, unavoidable events that will happen to you. That's called karma. So destiny is just a Western word for karma. So because we have all this destiny, we have all this karma, when we come back out again to the universe, we are not blank slaves. We are full of destiny. And the power of God that brings you your destiny is called Kala, time. Did you get the picture? That's what time is. Time is the power of God that brings you to your destiny. The destiny that you created by your intentional, conscious choices and actions. And so that's really what time is. It's the destiny maker. It's, it's. And so when the jivas come into the pradhana, it, 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 it becomes the mahatattva. Why? Because it's just like if you put a little, let's say, here's an original analogy, a little whirling ducky in your bathtub. <laughs> Sorry. I've been traveling a lot. <laughs> So, in other words, let's say you're taking a bath. Let's say you go to a lake. Oh, wait, here's a better analogy. Let's say you put a little one of those little motorized boats and you put it in a pond, and so it disturbs the water. The water, let's say, was placid. The water was just unmoving. Then you put a little electric boat in it or something, and the water starts moving. Why? Because there's a new force introduced into the water. So matter itself doesn't move. Matter itself doesn't do anything. It's dead matter. Fire doesn't burn. Water doesn't dissolve. It's just dead matter. It's the insertion of billions and trillions and, I don't know, octillions of destinies that start to move matter because matter has to go into motion in order to, under the power of time, to deliver to all these souls their destiny. Their karma. That's actually what happens. That's actually our philosophy. If you just sort of, you know, very simple. So that's what time really is. And because in the past we have chosen to try to exploit the material world, which is a no-no. I mean, it's just like if you go into Trader Joe's and, you know, you load up your cart, and then just kind of wheel it out to the parking lot and <laughs> drive home with it, bypassing the cash register. <laughs> that's a no-no. And so, and, and that's the word Krishna uses. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that if you take all the gifts given by my representatives, the devas, and you don't offer it back, in other words, you bypass the checkout stand, then uh, Krishna says such a person is stay naiva, nothing but a thief. So that's Krishna's word. Stay naiva, sir. He's nothing but a thief. So 
there is something unethical about material life. In fact, everything is coming to us from Krishna. Because Krishna is everything. Uh, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, the famous verse 719, that uh, ante, literally at the end of many births. Ant, ante, we still have in English as the word end, end, ant, same word. So, bahunam janmanam ante, janma, birth, we still have that word also in English, in the form of generate. The Sanskrit uh, verb jan means to take birth or to generate. Janiyati means he generates, or he or she generates. So, generate, genus, jati, it's all the same, Sanskrit and English. Jati means uh, genus or anyway, enough historical linguistic. So, Krishna says, after at the end of many births, Jnanavan, one who has knowledge, one who has knowledge, Mam Prabhajate, surrenders to me. One who has knowledge, Jnanavan. Why? Vasudeva Sarvam Iti. Iti in Sanskrit, often translated thus, actually is Sanskrit quotation mark. But, in other words, indicates a direct quotation. But in Sanskrit, uh, where they always try to do things in a compact way, um, the quotation marks are only put at the end of the statement, not at the front and back. So, because it was considered an intelligent reader to figure that out. So, Vasudeva Sarvam, Vasudeva is everything, Iti means, and then it says Samahatma, that great soul, Su Durlava, very hard to find, very hard to find such a great soul. But because there's an Iti after Vasudeva Sarvam means that is directly, it's a direct quotation of what the great soul is thinking or saying. It's a thought bubble, you know, like in the comics, it's a thought bubble or it's a direct quotation. So the great soul is directly thinking, Vasudeva is everything. Why is Krishna everything? Because, uh, for example, this universe, what you can, you can give a complete packing list for the universe, you know, everything in the universe, very simply, there's dead matter, and there's souls, and that's it. That's the whole inventory. Now, obviously, there's different categories of matter, and uh, and there are jiva souls. But Krishna says that earth, water, fire, air, and so on. Uh, they're my separated energy. It's Krishna's energy, and therefore the the great soul realizes Vasudeva is everything. Krishna is everything. Arjun says the same thing, by the way. Sarvam samapnoshi. Tatosi Saravam. You encompass everything. Therefore, you are everything. And of course, everything has to be understood in terms of its categories. This is not an impersonal blog. This is, there are many categories and divisions, but ultimately, just like, for example, let's say there's some big corporation, you go, okay, here's a, here's a natural food store, uh, here's a mail order thing, here's a program to send rockets into space, but it's all Amazon. Right? It's all Amazon. The Washington Post also. 
some people think it's a good newspaper. Anyway, so, so you can say, well, it's all Amazon because they own all that stuff. But actually, a newspaper is not a rocket, and a rocket is not a, let's go with that again, a rubber ducky being shipped out by mail order. And that is not, you know, Whole Foods. It's, 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 it's not a natural food store. A highly non-vegetarian natural food store. So they're all different, you know. Things that are being shipped out in boxes, rockets, newspapers, natural food stores. But you could say it's all Amazon. And so even more so is the case when you say it's all Krishna. It's all Vasudeva. Vasudeva Sarva. So if we put our little greasy mitts on, you know, on all these things that don't belong to us, and we don't remember to offer back. I mean, Krishna's not trying to enslave you. He's trying to free you. At the end of the Gita, Krishna says, Sarva dharmam parityaja mamekam tanabrajahantam moksi sarvapapabhyo moksi shyami. Krishna says, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to free you. And you are trying to enslave yourself. When you're trying for freedom, you're doing it the wrong way. Some people think freedom means to ignore the law and commit crimes. Like, I want that object. You know, whether they, they you know, it's a sexual object they want to rape, or it's some, you know, it, it's a car they can't, you know, they want to steal. That's the criminal mentality. I want that, I'm just going to take it. Because my desire is sufficient justification. This, of course, is sort of uh, sick Narcissism. My desire is sufficient. So that's basically the quote-unquote philosophy of the modern world. If I want something, it justifies my taking it. And this pleasant philosophy, of, as we know, is physically destroying the planet. So, um, this understanding that we are actually tiny souls, we are actually servants, and that everything belongs to someone. The universe belongs to someone. You know, you got to look at the name tag. Is there a Bhagavad Gita? So it doesn't, that doesn't mean we're slaves. It means we can be free because the person that owns everything is actually our most intimate friend. In fact, we are part of that absolute truth. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Mamai Bangsa, Jiva Loke, Jiva Bhutta Sanatana. The eternal living being in this world of life, Jiva. Mamai Vamsa Jiva in this world of life, Jiva Loka. Uh, the living being, that means all of us, the living being is actually part of me. But Manakshastani Indriyani, Prakriti Stani, Karsati, but now, uh, but, but the soul is struggling with six, the six senses, including the mind. In other words, karshati, actually the word karshati literally means to drag or pull. Uh, it's the same, comes to the same root as the word Krishna. I'm thinking of traction, attraction, right? You ever wonder why those two words are the same? Traction, like a tractor or an attractor. Oh my God, he's such an attractor, she's such an attractor, but, but not a tractor, right? I mean, you wouldn't fall in love with someone who's actually Unless they, maybe they were, a, what do they call that? A, a transformer. 
Maybe a transformer tractor might. Maybe never mind that. So, but if you think of the relationship between the words tractor and attractor, traction and attraction, because attraction is mental traction, something that pulls your mind, which attracts your mind. So, um, so karsati in this, this, the talk of the jiva, jiva, the, uh, jiva bhuta, the, the noun and the verb of this Sanskrit sentence are jiva bhuta, jiva bhuta karsati, the living being pulls, drags the material world, the material nature. What does that mean? Drags the senses, pulls the senses. It means that we are just always shopping for material sense objects. It's like shop till you drop, literally, you know, die. So that our, so we are we are struggling with our senses. We are trying to find pleasing sensations, trying to avoid painful sensations, trying to grab onto pleasing emotions, trying to avoid uh, unpleasant emotions. But getting it all wrong. It, it's, it's like the hedonist Someone who just wants pleasurable sensation and therefore will never take medicine, will never go to a doctor and dies young. Some things are immediately unpleasant, but in the long run they save your life and they give you great happiness. Like for example, working out a difficult relationship. Like two people can be in a relationship and basically it's a good relationship, but they annoy each other. I saw this refrigerator magnet that said, marriage is finding that one special person that you want to annoy for the rest of your life. <laughs> so, and yet, and yet there are benefits in keeping your vow. There are profound benefits in keeping your vow and being faithful to a faithful partner. I'm not advocating being faithful to a cheater. I'm advocating being faithful to a faithful person. And so there are lots of things in terms of relationships, in terms of health, in terms of everything, where it's no pain, no gain. And that people that take the easy way out, that don't want any struggle, don't want any suffering, just want everything that's immediately gratifying, end up with big problems, big suffering, if not madness. And so Krishna consciousness like that is the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate happiness and the ultimate gain. So, so much for all that. So I'll stop here. Who am I to delay your breakfast? <laughs> so, any questions on these points? Yes. I'll repeat your question so that people who are on Facebook can. Uh, go ahead. It was mentioning that in the Vedic calendar, every three years they add an extra month. Mm -hmm. Is that extra month what we refer to as month? Does anyone know that? Yeah, that's it. Or yes. month. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Oh, so uh, this devotee asked. Uh, that is Prabhupada says in the purport in the lunar calendar, Prabhupada calls the Vedic calendar, every uh, three years the month is added, and that is Purushottam Mas. Mas means month, of course. So, any other question?
Yes, my good old friend Sureshwara Prabhu. We met in 1970 in Boston. Still going strong. What's literally true and what's what's a metaphor? I once had a conversation with Bhagavad about this, and it was in connection with the Vedic conception of the universe. I'm trying to formulate a question, but ultimately Bharat was saying something like, because everything happens on the subtle platform. Actually, could you, I, I see, there's a lot of people who can't hear your question, so. Okay, so is there anything? Could you actually, would you mind coming, coming forward? You, well, can, you can win valuable prizes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually going to turn this around, so if you have a, if anyone has a serious question, come and actually come forward. Okay. So they can hear you. So Reshwara is a uh, senior member of this movement, and I think it'll be a purifying for all people watching me to see uh, such a nice devotee. Yeah, you're only 71, I'm 73. Right. Uh, my question for Maharaj is, ultimately, is there any difference between um, metaphor and what we call reality on the physical level, since everything really happens on, on a subtle platform? Like you said, it's a force. Time is a force. Krishna is a will. will be done. So, um, that's my question. Whether we're talking metaphor or physical reality. Okay, well don't go away in case you uh, don't agree with <laughs> that you're going to want to defend your point. So, uh, the matter is real. There's impersonalists who say it's all just illusion, but we know it's a real energy of Krishna. And of course, Krishna also says in the Bhagavad Gita, Naiva Kinchit Karomiti. Uh, one who knows tatwa. Tatwa is often translated as truth, but it, it means categorical truth. Just like Vishnu tatwa, Jiva tatwa. So tatwa means one of the basic categories of real things in the world. So Krishna says one who knows tatwa. So in this case, to know tatwa, to be a yogi that knows tatwa, means to know that the body is prakriti tatwa, it's matter, and I am Jiva Tattva. I am a living being. So if you know Tattva, you know that you're not your body. Those are fundamentally different types of energies. So Krishna says, one who is, first of all, Tattva Vit, who knows Tattva. Anyway, I'm going to the whole etymology of Tattva. It's a very interesting word, but I'll not time right now. One who knows Tattva and who's Yukta. Yukta is made from this, which is used a lot in the Gita, the word Yukta. It comes from the same root, used as the, as the word yoga. And so if yoga means link, link in, not linked in, something else, but linked. Linked in Sanskrit is Yukta. Linked. So, it's, so to be a linker, a yogi, yoga means link, yogi means a linker, and Yukta means linked. So it's all the same family of meaning. So Krishna is one who is yukta. So what does it mean to be yukta? It means to be spiritually connected, to be linked. So, so naiva kinshit karomiti is a one who is not simply a, a yogi in name, but one who is actually linked, connected, uh, and who knows tattva. Because you could sort of have a sentimental connection to God, but not really know what's going on. So Krishna emphasizes both these qualifications. 
that you are connected and you do understand tattva. So that person, they're again, iti, they're thinking, there's this direct quotation from the mind of this person, that naiva kinshit karomi iti. I am, do not do anything at all. I do not do anything at all. Because then Krishna gives a whole long list of actions like svapan, pralapan, that when you're talking or, 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 or sleeping or um, walking or sitting or doing this or doing that, gunaguneshu uh, vartanta. It's actually the gunas because this body is just it's just assembled from different, you know, guna-driven material elements. The gunas are functioning in the gunas. That's what's really happening. Because this body is a product of the gunas. Our previous choices, you know, we we have our little gunometer inside, and this is, it's a match. Like, you know, you see a boy, you see a girl, you see a house, oh, I want that house, or... I'm going to order, this is the type of pizza I want to order. You know, so at every moment we're making choices, your little gunometer is just choosing things. You're really just choosing gunas. When you choose the people you want to be with, the food you want to eat, the music you listen to, the books you read, the place you want to live, all that, those are just guna choices. Your little inner gunometer. So, therefore, when you're acting in this world, and the world is made of gunas, they're real objects, it's real matter, matter exists, but it's all driven by the gunas, and so when you act in the world, your gunas are just functioning or interacting with the world's gunas, and that's all that's happening. Since you're not a guna, uh, you are a soul, it's not really doing that. However, as Krishna explains in the Gita, you are, you know, pushing the buttons. It's just, it's like a drone war or something. Or it's like when you, or what, not war, let's say you have a little drone and you set it up and you're doing aerial photography, which is very common now. So actually, you are not flying and you are not taking the pictures, but you are at the keyboard. You are pushing the buttons. And so you, the soul, are inside the heart with your little keyboard and you're, you know, pushing buttons and making choices, and then your body, which is just like a, it's like a drum, or a, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, the body is just the ultimate robotic. It's a robot. Your body is a robot. It's not alive. You are inside the robot driving it like a virtual reality machine. And so in that sense, we're not doing anything. Not in the sense, so, and, and to the extent that our, our conscious will, the, and our will and the exercise of our will is subtle and not gross, in that sense, the real activity, the activity in our part is subtle. And, and we're driving all these things in the world. Sometimes people say, you know, why can't we remember our past karma? Uh, well, there are good reasons for not remembering your past karma. First of all, if you can remember, looks like 100 past lives, you would have one monster of an identity crisis. I mean, you would basically become catatonic. First of all, imagine your gender issues. And then, uh, like, who am I? Because 
you're a conditioned soul, you identify with your body. So, so if you identify with 50 different bodies or even 10 different bodies, you go crazy. Like, okay, am I really a student at in Arizona? Or am I a ship captain? Am I a cockroach? Am I a... Are you going nuts? So you could not remember all these lives and simultaneously be sane. That's just not an option. You, would, you could not function in the world. So Krishna mercifully. But then you could say, well, if I don't remember my past lives, how can I understand what's happening to me? There's an answer for that question. All right, let's Okay, I'll answer quickly. Three more minutes, and then... No, I guess no, I'm explaining why, why we don't need to remember what we did in the past life. And the reason is because based on what I just said, your real, let's say, pious or impious activity was not physical, it was an act of will. Let's say someone chose to, to harm another person or someone chose to help another person. You are really responsible not just for what your body did because that's just a robot. It was your act of will when you decided to do that. That's really what you did inside the body and that's still there. You can still retrieve that. Because if you go deep into your own consciousness and your own conscience, you can find the pious and impious impulses, urges and desires that cause you to be in that situation. So you can actually retrieve the cause of your present karma uh, simply by going into your deep, own deep psychology. So we'll end there. Thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. She'll be speaking tomorrow morning, same time, same place. Make sure to get your hand stamps, you can get them for free.